This is The Guardian. First, it was a parliamentary researcher. Now we find out that the security services warned against allowing two Tory party candidates to stand for election in case they were spying for China. The Conservative Party's so-called sino-sceptics, such as Liz Truss, are having a field day. What we need to do is to recognise that China is the largest threat, both to the world and to the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, away from foreign policy, the focus has turned to dangerous dogs. That's the sound of the viral video of an American bully dog on the rampage in Birmingham. So is banning that breed the answer? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week the UK for the Guardian. Joining me today from a somewhat noisy office in Westminster are The Guardian's political editor Pippa Krirauer and Dan Saba, our defence and security editor. Hello to you both. Hello. 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 Today we will be talking about alleged espionage in the heart of Westminster, what that story might tell us about China and the Conservative Party's relationship with that country and its government. And after that, we'll be uh, looking at the fact that the government is said to be seriously considering whether to ban American bully dogs and disposable vapes. Right, let's talk about Westminster spies or allegations of such things. Over the weekend, the Sunday Times published allegations that someone uh, was spying for China within Westminster. Since then, the Times has named that person, but for legal reasons, we're not going to. He, it is said, is a man in his late 20s who was arrested back in March. No charges had been brought at the time this podcast was recorded, um, and he's issued a complete denial. So, Dan, what do we know? Well, as your summary already suggests, this is rather smoke. Like all good espionage stories, this is a sort of smoky and difficult business. What we do know is uh, two people were arrested uh, actually six months ago in March on suspicion uh, of offences breaching the old 1911 Official Secrets Act. Basically, the sort of the, the catch-all legislation that's historically been used for bringing espionage prosecutions in the UK. This, however, remained quiet. It was basically kept under the radar. And although we've now established senior politicians knew and knew at the time, uh, and, and one or two of the other MPs involved, no, no one knew for months, six months. One of the individuals is of greater interest than others of, uh, than the other for now. As you said, is a parliamentary aide, uh, worked with a number of Conservative MPs, seems to have moved in Conservative circles predominantly from what we know, working for, in particular, Tom Tugendhat, who's now the Security Minister, but this is when he was a backbench MP, and more recently for Alicia Kearns, who is the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Now, there is another element to this story, uh, which is sort of broken um, overnight um, re- in relation to when we were recording this. It is said now that the Conservative Party, in quotes, acted swiftly to block two potential parliamentary candidates from standing for election after warnings from MI5 they could be spying for China. So there's now large amounts of this in the air. Let's quickly hear a bit of the exchange between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak at PMQs on Wednesday. Did the Foreign Secretary raise this specific case when he visited China, yes or no? Mr. Mr. Speaker, I'll refer to my previous answer where I said very clearly that the the Foreign Secretary raised these issues with the the Chinese Foreign Minister who he met, as did I when I had my meeting with Premier Li over the weekend. But when it comes to China, Mr. Speaker, this government has put in place the most robust policy that has existed ever in our country's foreign policy. It is to protect 
our country, to protect our country for the values and the interests that we stand up for. It is to align our approach with our closest allies, including those in the G7 and the Five Eyes, and is to engage where it makes sense, either to advance our interests or, as I did at the weekend, to raise our very significant concerns. Now, any mention of spies in Westminster inevitably feels a bit John le Carre. Um, we've seen this happen before uh, recently. Barry Gardner, the Labour MP, received £500,000 from Christine Lee, a Chinese lawyer, who in 2022 was accused of carrying out political interference activities on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. She denied wrongdoing and is suing MI5. So it's not like there haven't been these stories before. How common is this kind of stuff, even as tittle-tattle and rumour? Well, I think what's interesting here is that over the last sort of five, five, six, seven, eight years, really since, I guess, the, the rise of... Xi Jinping in as president of China, we've seen a much more aggressive attitude from China in terms of espionage and espionage activity internationally. I mean, this this is part of the the generally more assertive approach that China has taken and is seeing itself as a kind of competitor state, a rival to the United States and the West. Um, big countries spy. You know, spying is something that happens. What's embarrassing is getting caught, uh, and, and and what causes the diplomatic arguments is what you say about what you're prepared to say about it in public. But what what is interesting about this case is that China has been stepping up its activities and is showing greater interest in trying to understand better what's going on in British Parliament. I mean, you could argue it could just pay, perhaps it could pay a lobbying firm or or, or even read the pages of The Guardian and other newspapers to find out what was going on. But nevertheless, they have been. And and, and what's potentially interesting about this case and these are allegations and there's no prosecution. And of of course, the individual concerned is, is, we understand he's a Briton. So traditionally, China has sort of concentrated its espionage activities working through its diaspora. There are Chinese diaspora in every country in the world. But but on this occasion, this 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 would appear to be a step change. Okay. Pippa, what's your sense of how much people are talking about it and how much people are worried about it in Westminster? It's really been the subject of the week. It came up at PMQs this week as well, when Keir Starmer challenged Rishi Sunak over what the government knew, demanded a full audit of UK-China ties and suggested that he'd left the country vulnerable. But it's also being talked about in the bars and in the corridors of Westminster, particularly with uh, the suggestion that MI5 had warned Tories that some of their a couple of their MP candidates might be spies. It wasn't just this one-off of about a parliamentary researcher. Um, and within the Conservative Party, it's been an issue which has really struck a chord with many of them over many years. There's there've been there's two main groups of Conservative MPs that uh, of sinoskeptic uh, Conservative MPs, and they've always been quite territorial about about their patches. But in the last few days, they that has has really blown open. And, and they've descended into outright rivalry. So, yeah, this takes us into divisions in the Tory party between so-called hawks who want to label China officially as a hostile state and another body of Tory MPs, broadly speaking, who don't think we're there, right? And perhaps for economic reasons, among all others, uh, would tend to downplay their view of China compared to that sort of verdict. Um, I think at the moment, the official definition of, of uh, what swirls around the UK's relationship with China is that it poses, quote, an epoch-defining and systemic challenge, unquote. Dan, do you, do you suspect that the tensions between those two points of view is now going to increase? Something rotten? 
Uh, a lot of this is virtue signalling in the Conservative Party. Um, designating China as a threat would really put it on a par with Russia, which is definitely, which is officially an acute threat, and its invasion of Ukraine shows it as such. It's, a, it's a willingness to poison people on the streets of the UK is another demonstration of that. I mean, one has to be clear: no serious ally of the UK calls China a threat. You know, Joe Biden asked the Defence Department to just, you know sees China as a pacing challenge. That 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 China, in other words, is the military threat that the Pentagon must. Must, must mark itself against, but, it's but it doesn't use the word threat. But it's inconceivable that a country as bound up in our economy in a very, very sizable way, and sort of by extension, the administration of government and so on, if you look at the Chinese involvement in nuclear power, for example, right? How on earth do you could you balance calling that country a threat when it's as bound up in your domestic affairs as China is? Well, well, these these are some of the complexities you see. Although you know, Russia was moder- you know Russia was quite bound up in our domestic affairs. You know, there was Russian ownership of Chelsea Football Club, and uh, and an awful lot of oligarchs were spending time in London. Yet the invasion of Ukraine happened. You weren't going shopping on a Saturday and filling your basket, you know, fifty no. percent with products made in China, which is the reality of the British economy. Yeah, uh, well, th- I think these things, to some extent, these things are a complicated balancing act. And what is tr- you know, and it is true that China is not a sort of overt military threat to the UK. You're absolutely right. There's a sort of, you know, much more complicated economic relationship than there was with there was with Russia. Although I think it wasn't probably the best idea now dropped to have China building part building British nuclear power stations. Do you think that was a good idea? I don't. Uh, no, it looked very strange at the time. We'll talk about that in a moment. Pippa, where's James Cleverly, the Foreign Secretary, in the midst of all this? I don't mean geographically. I mean, in terms of his point of view. <laughs> Well, the pendulum has swung back and forth in the Conservative Party and British government um, over the last sort of decade or so. And there was that golden era, I suppose, if you they would see it like that, um, in economic relations, which David Cameron and George Osborne favoured when they were in power, in which, uh, you know, the Chinese were invited to invest in our infrastructure, as Dan mentioned, and uh, trade increased between between the two countries. And it's kind of swung back and forth. Um, most recently, with Liz Truss, obviously, who was a real Sino-Skeptic and wanted to designate uh, China a threat, and then it's it feels like it swung back under under Rishi Sunak and James Cleverly to the more sort of economic, pragmatic approach. We're aware perhaps that um, there's a, more than a hundred billion pounds worth of trade between the two countries every year, that they're a massive trading partner for us. Um, And I went to a summit, an international summit with James Cleverly earlier this year and interviewed him about China. And he was very clear that Britain shouldn't, to use his words, pull the shutters down um, on China, that it'd be counterproductive to our our national interests. It was so irrevocably tied economically, um, you know, with the future of tech and AI and things, um, that it would be that it'd be damaging to us economically. It wouldn't be worth doing. And he warned Tory Hawks that it it, sh- it couldn't be a binary choice, as many of them seem to see it as, between treating China as a threat or taking or, or treating it as an opportunity, and suggesting that the UK's approach needs to be more nu- nuanced. But that message, um, particularly in the last few days when we've had. Uh, China spying allegations is really complicated. The sort of the viewpoint on some of the, on the backbenches and amongst these two main, the China Research Group and the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, that message has gone down, had already gone down badly. And this week in particular, it's a reminder to them why they are so sceptical uh, about China and crucially China's interest in the UK. Dan, you mentioned a moment ago what was going on sort of seven or eight years ago which does seem uh, like something from a different age now, arguably. Um, David Cameron took President Xi for a pint near Chequers. George Osborne, who was then the Chancellor of the Exchequer, showed him around Manchester Airport. And the government talked a lot and very loudly about a partnership between the two countries. 
which woven, I mean, woven through that was this idea, I suppose, which was still just about fashionable in the West, that, that China over time would, uh, in its own way, would, you know, move a bit more closer to sort of democratic norms and so on. You, when you look back at that, you, I guess one wonders, were, they, were Cameron Osborne a bit naive about the situation? Do you think? I, I think they were the tail end of this sort of post-Cold War moment, which is now well and truly past. The end of history and all that uh, stuff. Yes, and I think in the end of history, the belief was that y- if you traded, if you could trade with an authoritarian regime, it would eventually, uh, capitalism would inevitably lead to democracy and, and it would inevitably sort of change and, uh, change and alter. And it, and it finally you know, exploded with Russia's invasion of Ukraine because the reality is, that economic engagement with Russia and China has not made a difference to the you know either country. These are both highly authoritarian regimes, so that policy has clearly failed. And I think that Cameron and Osborne, right at the back end of that, let's get some more inward investment capital into the UK, and they've been shown up for being naive because look, the reality is that China and Russia do see themselves as and clearly defining themselves as competitor nations to the West, forming an alternative bloc. One thing among many strikes me about this story. Which is, um, these allegations suggest that China isn't terribly ambitious, maybe as far as its espionage is concerned, right? This is not a person or people, if we look at that story about um, allegations about conservative candidates, who were at the heart of government, right? This isn't Philby and McLean and those people back in the, no. back in the Cold War who really this had a really lot of important. access to a lot of secret information and so on, right? This is, this is somebody who you and I would walk around the parliamentary estate and we think, oh, well, there's another spad. Yeah, and this is this is tremendously important insofar as we can. And of course, one fact can change. You know, one new fact can change our understanding. But let's look at the let, let's look at the allegations here. So we're saying that this is a researcher who worked for a, you know a couple of upwardly mobile, well plugged in, well known Conservative MPs. Yes, but um, even as chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, one might be on the telly quite a lot. But do you see classified documents, papers? You do not. So this is not someone who's sort of getting hold of of secret information about the inner workings of the British state. Certainly not. I guess the question is, is this someone who might have been trying to influence and shape policy of the people around them? Well, we don't know. And, and of course, they're denying all the allegations that are, uh, this individual has denied all the allegations that have been sort of circulating, uh, the allegations of espionage. Or could it be the case that there's a kind of sort of softer, softer information, the kind of gossipy information that swirls around Westminster, who likes who, maybe who's, who drinks a lot, maybe who's got financial problems, whatever the back chat in an MP's office, that might that might have some value, but to be honest, could you not get that from, as I said earlier, could you not get that from reading the papers? The, the truth is that we don't understand Beijing brilliantly, but equally, they really don't understand us. And if they think this is inf- valid, potentially value, valuable information, it's a curiosity that they do. As you understand it, do we have um, any people ourselves sort of hanging around the outer fringes of the Chinese government machine, finding out which Chinese politicians drink a lot and might have financial problems? Are you asking me whether Britain has spies in China? The answer answer to that question is, of course, yes. And at work at this outwardly somewhat sort of piffling level. (laughs) I am sure. Who knows precisely what goes on? But but does the UK have you know run run spies in countries like China and Russia to sort of div- better divine the intentions of uh, politburos and Kremlins? Yes, of course it does. Uh, yeah, everyone. That's the point. Everyone spies, and no one. But but you know the problem is getting caught. It's embarrassing to get caught. It's not embarrassing to do it. Two last questions, Pippa. Firstly, I wonder about how this will play politically. 
Do you think at least in some small way it will add to the impression that the Rishi Sunak government is now sort of locked into incompetence and, and on any given week, another sort of bad thing happening in the general sense that things are falling apart? Well, it's slightly different from some of the other bad things, as you called them, that has happened. You know, schools crumbling, concrete crumbling in schools and prisoners breaking out of prisons. But it definitely adds to the sense that, uh, if not that nothing is working, that that uh, that Rishi Sunak doesn't really have control of the agenda and that stuff keeps going wrong for him, that he's unlucky. Um, and whether that luck is is uh, dictated by his own party's time in government, and this is where we've ended up, or whether it's a more personal thing, I think the public will decide for themselves. But he does have a lot, it seems to be every few days, another drama, another scandal, another another problem that he's having to deal with. And all of that distracts, it means bad headlines, and it distracts from the agenda that he wants to crack on with and sort of showing a more positive light about what he would do uh, for the country going forward. And, and so therefore, it's a problem for him, as well as it possibly internally, um, about how it goes down that uh, the Chinese spies t- tried to infiltrate his his own party. I mean, what you just said there underlines something a, a great political journalist said back in the 1990s, which is that accident-prone politicians don't become accident-prone by accident, I suppose. Um, last question. This is a very, very big argument about the balance of power in the world, economically and politically and diplomatically right now, and it will go on. And in that sense, these arguments are likely to flare up when the Labour Party is in power or if the Labour Party takes power, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, this is the real politic of global relations rather than anything that's necessarily dictated by particular parties' views internally in, in the UK. And I think that what we will, would see under Keir Starmer should he win the next election, David Lammy presumably be his foreign secretary, is a, a continuation of status quo. That everything we've heard from Starmer at PMQs and over the last few days about the government making potentially Britain more vulnerable as a result of its relations with China, it'd be very interesting to see exactly what they would do differently. Because under Keir Starmer, there has definitely been a cross-party consensus in, in much of their approach to foreign policy, in contrast, obviously, to his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. And I'm not entirely clear if they make it into government, whether that would change at all. So in that sense, whatever the sound and fury this week, Dan, if the Labour Party takes office, will carry on walking this sort of delicate and often somewhat contradictory walk where we sort of both acknowledge that China isn't in the place we would like it to be and there are problems in our relationship with it. But nonetheless, we have to sort of leave things much as they are. There'll be a mixture of muddling along and, and, and actually an honest debate about what the correct relationship is between the UK and China from the Britain's perspective. One wouldn't be surprised that will be then sort of upset by, you know, perhaps another kind of another of these kind of spying revelations. I mean, the fact that, that, that in this case we're talking about someone in conservative circles, uh, I mean, you know, one would hope that China, that the Chinese can read the opinion polls and we'll see the Labour Party is on the up and <laughs> might show a bit more interest in Labour. And I think that... Um, so we we are we are likely to see these kind of things again. It's just really important that we just see them in context. You know, this is not this is not a profound th- theft of state secrets. This is people floating around the edges of Parliament picking up information that, frankly, you know, good media organisations can pick up. So this is not like a this is not a full on scandal. But the fact that the Chinese seem to be interested in doing this, uh, uh, you know, once twice suggests that they'll they'll do it again. Okay, we may well be back in our position as people who, uh, like these people, are alleged to have done hang around Westminster and see what's going on and try and get a sense of the secrets behind the facade. Okay, we'll pause there for a minute. Pippa and Dan, thank you for joining us. 
Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. When we come back after the break, we're going to be looking at dangerous dogs and disposable vapes and why both could be banned. Hello, guys. This is Shante, the host of the Guardian's Pop Culture Podcast. We're back for more. And listen, when it comes to pop culture, if you're talking about it, we've got it covered. As an extra treat for you, I'm going to be at the London Podcast Show in King's Place on Sunday, the 17th of September with the expert matchmaker, Paul C. Brunson. You know, our fave Married at First Sight expert. Do you want to find your perfect partner in life? Then you have to come and see us. Paul has all the tips and tricks. Get your tickets in person or go to kingsplace.co.uk forward slash pop culture. Mit Asana erhalten Sie einen Überblick über alle Details an einem zentralen Ort, damit Sie und Ihr Team sich auf die wirklich wichtigen Arbeiten und Ziele konzentrieren können. Jetzt kostenlos unter asana.com testen. Ein Podcast macht kurz Pause. Hate Speech dagegen hört nicht so einfach auf. Wer hat dir überhaupt erlaubt zu reden, Schlampe? Verzieh dich in die Küche, bevor ich herausfinde, wo du wohnst und dir... Dir persönlich Danke sage. Hör nicht auf die Hater. Du machst einen richtig guten Job. Und wir stehen alle hinter dir. Wir alle entscheiden, ob wir das Netz dem Hass überlassen. Werde Teil der Telekom-Initiative gegen Hass im Netz und setze ein Zeichen. Telekom. Welcome back. By now, if you own a smartphone, you will have probably seen the video of an American bully dog attacking an 11-year-old girl and two men in Birmingham. It's a pretty horrific video. Um, that breed of dog has been linked to 14 deaths in the UK since 2021. If you want to picture them, they are heavy set, really, really heavy, as heavy, it is said, as a muscular adult man in many cases. And they're a crossbreed between an American Pitbull Terrier and an American Staffordshire Terrier. Anecdotally, a vet we spoke to before we started recording this podcast said that some people who've worked on these bully dogs were terrified that one bite on their hand could end their career as a vet. I've got the Guardian Zoe Williams with me in the studio now. Hello, Zoe. Hello. Uh, you've written about this recently, haven't you? Yeah. Tell I me have. why. Well, I mean, I, I thought about this a lot because, you know, ever since 91, which was kind of the start of my career, there have been kind of periodic moral panics about breeds of dogs so in the dangerous dogs act it was pit that was the dangerous dogs yeah the dangerous dogs act uh was passed in 1991 when yeah. john major was the prime minister and it was and it was preceded by exactly this conversation which was a kind of these dogs are born bad the uh, a single the, the kind of weight per jaw square per square inch of jaw is unlike anything you would find outside a zoo that is also true of the staffy that's true of the mastiff that's true of the pit bull it's really you know it's, it's actually the fact that bullies are 60 kilos rather than 30 kilos it doesn't actually make a huge amount of difference to the jaw strength which is phenomenal you know right a pit bull can could end your career couldn't end your career because you're mainly a chatter but it could end my career <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, go on. Um, so you you kind of see these kind of moral panics come up, and you see a huge amount of very kind of febrile discussion around around types of dog, which kind of comes apart from 
anything resembling a sensible approach. Right, okay. But if you're talking about sensible, the figures do seem to be stark, right? Between 2001 and 2021, there were an average of three deaths caused by dogs a year. In 2022, there were 10. And so far in 2023, there have been five. And since the start of 2022, American bullies have been responsible for 11 of the 15 deaths recorded. That's a lot. No, no, no. I'll tell you exactly why they're a particular problem. And the first reason is that they're overbred. Now, you get temperamental problems with overbred dogs. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's basically if a bitch has a litter and then has a litter too soon after the previous litter, the dogs are weird. Okay. But clearly, if you get behaviourally weird dogs so that are sufficiently strong yeah, that they you, can kill people, it, you've got a big problem. Yeah, it's, mass, it's a massive problem. I'm not, I wasn't ever saying it wasn't a problem. But what I was saying was that if you get a conversation which, which into which a lot is freighted that isn't actually about a dog, then you start trying to pass legislation which doesn't help. Right? Okay. One of the things that you have raised in your writing about this, is that you think there is a class element to this story. Yeah, I think there's a massive class and race codification to all kinds of dog panics, right? So you very rarely... This one included? Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely. And and certainly with the way people talk about them, they always talk about the kind of the wrong kind of people owning them, people owning them as status dogs. Whenever people say status status dogs, they almost always mean young black men. They don't mean middle-class women. They don't mean working-class women even. It's really gender, race, class-coded. And, and, I, and I find, you know, leaving aside the fact that I don't like class war, I especially don't like it when it's played in kind of shadow puppetry. When people say inexperienced owners, status dogs, irresponsible owners, they're basically saying this kind of dog is owned by this kind of young man. Are they? Aren't yeah, they just saying they that, that they are. tend to be owned by irresponsible people because no. why else would you want a, why well, else would but, you want a dog yeah, but John, which is, is known for being volatile and might kill people well no it's it's um it's lo- loads and loads of stuff going on there a i mean i don't know where you are on dogs do you like dogs no i don't i'm not okay. a dog person so really. so you're not really going to get having a dog <laughs> No, I get having a dog. I don't know why you have to have gonna... one that could conceivably kill someone. Yeah, exactly. Someone. You're, you're not going to get why anybody would have a Mastiff if they could have a Shih Tzu. Uh, Do you know what either of those are? No, but one sounds more harmful, <laughs> potentially, well, than Mastiffs, the other. Mastiffs are massive, yeah, okay. right? And they're potentially incredibly dangerous dogs. But yeah. they aren't often very dangerous dogs because they're, they, you know, they're kennel club verified. They're incredibly carefully... The bloodline is incredibly carefully tended. They're, they, you know... They, they, Everybody knows one Mastiff from another. But so, you don't think wanting one of these dogs no, as exactly. a cat a Labrador or a Dalmatian no, I might say something about you and say toxic no, masculinity, I w- No, I really don't. Because it's like you wouldn't say that about Mastiff because they're not associated with the working classes. Ah, but they so are. In other words, there are da- it's arbitrary. Yeah, there are some yeah. potentially dangerous dogs, which we don't talk about. Which we never because say. Because they're not associated we with We never say, why would you want a Mastiff? Look at its gigantic head. Its head is bigger than yours. Who would want that dog? Even though, you know, you would probably think that. You would never say it. Evan Davis would never say it right. on Radio Four because it's not a class. It's not class. But your point rated. is that there are middle and upper class people who are in possession of potentially dangerous dogs who get off scot free. They're not included no, in this no, no, conversation. No, no, that, no, That's actually not my proposition at all. I mean, I think if you if you're a kind of middle class person who happens to like a bull breed, you end up. Uh, you end up accidentally tarnished with the same class hatred. And that's happened to you, working I think, class hasn't owners. it? You yeah, have, yeah, definitely. You I have mean, a, a crossbreed of a Staffordshire Bull Terrier and a Rhodesian Ridge. That was my first dog. And, and it and, bit yeah. your mum, did it not? Well, it, she, was being, she was being really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a side issue. Is it? Yeah. Is yeah, that yeah. a direct experience of exactly what we're talking no, about? No, 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 no. Because actually, if that had been a... 
I mean, if he had been a volatile dog, he would have that. She wouldn't have walked away from that. <laughs> that right. would have been career changing. <laughs> but you feel There's what, a repeatedly of... you've been sort of unfairly maligned and even insulted for the fact that you've got a Staffordshire Bull Terrier. There's a there's a so to take one question at a time. There's a ladder of aggression, right? And and volatile dogs move up the ladder very fast. Often you'd be in a bad situation before you knew it had even started with a volatile dog. So you might be right that there is a certain class and race, for that matter, element to the way that this story is being reported and the way that some yeah. of these dogs are being understood. But there's another class element to this, arguably, which is that if middle class people had been mauled to death by dogs in these numbers, everyone would be going crazy. And the story about this somewhat is people who tend to live in somewhat deprived and marginalised communities who've died in horrible ways, kids included, and not nearly enough of us. Well, I disagree that we could be going any crazier because we're already going crazy, right? We're talking about this round the clock and everybody's got, everybody's become very polarised very fast and half the people are like, all these dogs should be exterminated right now and half the people are like, it's not, it's, it's not the dog, it's the owner. But, but the, the truth is, but if, I, if, I think if, exactly the same now as I thought in 1991. Which is what? Which is, there's, you're not actually helping banning the breed. What would help is if you thought, if you had good evidence that a breed had was predisposed towards aggression, you'd have a muzzle order on that breed. And then what's the worst that could happen? Okay. And, so, and it's so easy, but because nobody really, this is what I mean by a moral panic, nobody really wants an easy answer. They want, a, they, it's a kind of necropolitics. People want the kind of answer. They want eye for an eye discussion. They want a, a discussion that ends in violence, whether that's a violence against a whole breed of dog or whether that's a kind of violence against which class is most serious conversation. So you'd have muzzle orders. Would you, I would have a muzzle Would you order be all right sure. with harsher penalties for the owners of dogs who maul People. But they've they've already got really hard. No, I mean, they're not. They're, that's no, not right. They, no, that's not it's right. a it's a 14-year prison in sentence. 20, in 2022, offenders on average were ordered to pay £813, with victims receiving only £585 in compensation. Yeah, but that will that will relate. That's according to the that Times. Will, that will relate to how bad the injury was. I mean, if the injury was really bad, then that penalty would be, will be much more stringent. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but if you look at the convictions for dangerous dog ownership versus, say, rape convictions, then you'll see that it's actually pretty stringent. I sense there's another thing within this, which is a sort of broader point about the politics and the practical effects of banning things, right? Yeah. Which is that banning things, uh, certainly when it comes to uh, things like this, drugs arguably is another example, doesn't get rid of the problem. It just pushes it somewhere else. And if you're not careful, it makes it worse, right? I think I think if you It's sort ban of stupid them, and futile politics. Yeah, it's, it's, it's A, it's stupid and futile. B, you don't... You don't actually have the architecture to keep on top of every single XL bully in the country. So all you're doing is kind of chasing underground what are quite a large number of them. And that... No, I was reading, for example, only a, a moment ago that there are still around 2,000, it is reckoned, Pitbull Terriers in, in the country, even though they were ostensibly banned oh, yeah, in yeah, 1991. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but that's because you can get an exemption. If you can show that you've got a really nice, well-trained Pitbull, you can get an exemption. You can get a certificate of exemption. Um, let's talk about the politics of banning as far as they uh, extend, or may extend soon, to disposable vapes. <laughs> I don't want to put you through the grinder here, but you own a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, I feel and like you I'm... vape as well, don't you? Feel... So you're the ideal person to ask about both these I things. I feel like I'm the poster girl <laughs> for everything that's everything gone wrong, wrong with society. Yes, you've got a small boat in your garden as well, so I'm told. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, it is said that they should be banned, 
because we've got a huge problem with litter, chiefly, but also that there is an issue with the disproportionate marketing. Are you having a, a vape now yeah, in the I'm, studio? I'm vaping while I... I've got, I've got like an amazing ability to not to vape and nobody notices like it's like well, my middle-aged noticed. cloak of invisibility because it's but that's so... not a disposable vape is no it? of course not that's no. an old person i mean i find vape. i find disposable vapes very uneconomical i don't know why the kids use but them. but they're disproportionately marketed at kids that's yeah, the other yeah. thing well, have and, you seen and, them no uh, we've seen them lying on the road people have got rid of but, them I mean, i've seen people smoking them at a distance or vaping at a distance they're so extraordinary because you go into a shop and they're these kind of candy colors and some of them have got squiggles and it's a bit like going it's a bit like discovering eyeshadow for the first time when you go into a Mac store when you're 12, you just look at one and you want every single one you can see. Your eyes pop out their head. It's like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I think if, if if teenagers, if somebody said to teenagers that you can vape, but you have to have one of these ridiculous kind of clunky steampunk ones like what I've got. Yeah. Then they might it might put some of them off. But in that sense, again, you acknowledge that there is a problem here. Mm. I mean, it depends what you mean. If you mean there's a litter well, problem, then for sure. Well, if nicotine is being sort of brazenly marketed at children and young people, who, yeah, from what I'm told, then become sufficiently addicted that after about that 15 they... minutes in class, they start getting really, really twitchy, right? Then you've got a problem. Well, well, Let alone with all the, the, mean, the great piles there's, of there's, discarded there's disposable vapes lit- there, littering the John. pavement. I mean, you, you used to smoke, right? Yeah. I mean, I smoked when I was at school. I smoked since I was 13, I don't remember being a real problem for teachers because I wanted a cigarette. I'm not sure I was ever properly addicted, to be honest. Oh, I was really, really addicted. Yeah, but that's not, that's not an argument for well, not no, doing I'm just anything. Saying, I'm just saying that you're, you're doing a bit of a reductio ad absurdum, as ever, which, which is like you kind of take these kind of daily mail moral panics. What, oh, my personally? God, teenagers are completely uncontrollable. Me personally. Because they're all, yeah. No, I'm just presenting you with what is said about these things. It doesn't mean I think, doesn't mean I think it's a matter of huge urgency. But because you have you interesting be, opinions, I'm curious be, to know... <laughs> In this case, as with dangerous dogs, right? <laughs> what you would do about disposable vapes? Well, I mean, given half the chance. For a start, I'd have a sense of proportion, and I wouldn't listen to every everybody who th- who says that it, that kids are kind of suddenly unmanageable because of nicotine. Secondly, is there a case to answer that you shouldn't be selling them like sweets to kids? Yes, yeah. but it's it's within the wit of man to. To, woman. Um, or woman to legislate to kind of say 16's over and over it's quite hard to get a drink in a pub now if you're 15 but there is a point here isn't there about the sort of phase of politics that we're in no, this th- is what happens when politics runs out of road yeah really. I think the vapes thing is politics running out of road and I think the the XL bully conversation is a sort of it's part necropolitics it's part class war it's part moral panic and it's got all those it's got all those components of a conversation in which a lot is being said which is not being explicitly said and the conversation gets very heated and and very very hysterical very fast and I would be sad to see a lot of dogs exterminated on that basis. Sounds like a increasingly familiar description of the sort of dead end that Pollux has arrived yeah, at for yeah, the moment. Yeah, basically. Right, thank you for coming in. No, my pleasure. Thanks for listening. I should say that this week's Science Weekly podcast is also looking at dangerous dogs and more specifically whether any dog is inherently dangerous. So please do go and have a listen to that 
for a different side to this issue. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Politics Weekly UK. If you did, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and even better, leave us a review. Shantae Joseph returns to pop culture on Thursday the 14th of September. The series has already explored whether AI is going to ruin music as we know it, and if astrology is changing our love lives. Now the series is back with new guests, and it's going to look into brand new trending pop and internet culture stories. New episodes will appear every Thursday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Politics Week UK was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier, and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 